You're listening to part one of a special episode of 2036, the podcast, recorded in front of a live audience at Emory University, with your host Munir Megjani, featuring Carol Anderson. In this episode, it is listening to those communities that are involved in civic engagement, trying to figure out how do we make this thing better? What is our vision for this democracy? How do we then use our strengths knowing this information that's here at Emory in order to improve the quality of our lives, in order to improve this society. And it means coming in without those biases, without the paternalism, without the sexism, without the racism, without any of those isms. And that's some heavy lifting, but we got the power to do that. Hello and welcome to 2036, the podcast. My name is Munir McJohnny and I will be your host for today. Today with us, we have someone who I cherish so much and look up to as a role model. Carol Anderson is the Charles Howard Candler Professor and was the chair of African-American studies at Emory University. She has authored several books, including White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, and One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. White Rage won the 2016 National Book Critic Circle Award for Criticism and is also a New York Times bestseller, a New York Times editor's pick, and listed on the Zora list of 100 best books by Black women authors since 1850. Anderson has been elected into the Society of American Historians, named a W.E.B. Du Bois Fellow of the American Academy of Political and Social Sciences, and selected into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I Too, a documentary film inspired by her work, recently had its world premiere at the Carter Center. Anderson holds a PhD in history from The Ohio State University. Thank you and welcome to the podcast. Ah, thank you so much, Munir. So I often tell folks, especially folks who I mentor, that it's important to become uncomfortable and being comfortable being uncomfortable. But I think lately I've taken it a step further and said that it's important to seek discomfort. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're going to do today in our conversation. Yeah, you're getting ready to preach. Yes, (laughs) yes. So your scholarship is just impeccable and, you know, speaks to the increasing polarization of the viewpoints. How do you cut through the haze, if you will, of misinformation to help your students develop and apply critical thinking to real world issues of race and social justice? Uh, Thank you for that question, because I love to teach and I love my students. They are amazing and they come into the classroom absolutely eager, thirsting to figure Mm. stuff out. And one of the things in every one of my classes, I require major research, uh, either research papers or a series of op-eds. And what I do to help my students develop that critical thinking skill is I send them into the archives. Our Rose Library is phenomenal. And there, they're able to just dig in and they get to see the things unfold. So let me give you an example. I had a student um, who was pre-med and he said, Professor Anderson, I just don't understand. Why haven't African-Americans made more progress after the civil rights Mm. movement? And I said, great question. And I sent him up into the archives. 
and he found this collection called the Neighborhood Network Alliance or something like that. This was a group that tracked Klan members in Georgia government and in the judiciary oh, wow. of Georgia in the 1970s and 1980s. And so he was able to figure out who these folks were by going into the archives, then looking at the legislation that they blocked, looking at the court decisions that they made. And so you begin to understand the depth of the structures. Mm. And so that's how I do this, is I send them, you really learn by doing your own research. And I'm, I don't mean that stuff where you're Googling, <laughs> Lord. <laughs> Genuine research. Genuine research, because the other thing is that even if you do Google, the question that I ask is, whose document is this? Mm. Who is crafting this document? What are their biases? Who's funding them? When you begin to ask that next set of questions, you begin to get some great answers. So let me give you another example. Previously, where I taught previously before, my classes were huge, and so I would break them off into research teams. And... I told them that three foundations put a quarter of a billion dollars on the table to transform one of the troubled school districts in the United States. And each team had their own school district. They had to figure out how did this district end up looking like this? Mm. What's been tried before? What worked, what didn't work, and why? And what were the best practices out there that they were going to, to intervene to try to implement here? And as they presented their proposal, the rest of the class acted as members of those foundation boards, making the decision on whether to fund. Well, one group came up, and they were looking at Kansas City. Okay. And Kansas City, Lord have mercy. Yeah. <laughs> and in his work, one of the students wrote the section on what have we tried before? Mm. And that was massive funding that had been court ordered after 25 years of defying the Brown decision. Mm. And, and he said, well, it didn't work. And it didn't work because black parents were so, um, did not push because they were um, aligned with the black teachers. And so they didn't care if their kids didn't learn. And I was just like, Lord, have mercy. You know, how you could come to that conclusion after these parents have been fighting for decades to get quality education. I said, what's your source? And he named his source. And I said, who are they? What is their agenda? And when he started unpacking that, he saw that their agenda did not align with the facts of what was going on and that he hadn't interrogated. He hadn't interrogated who were the members of the, the school board? Who were the members? Did he talk to any members of the families? Did he, you know, did you do that kind of deep work or did you just rely on this one source to tell you what it was? And so that's how I do that is by really requiring deep research, really embracing tough questions and then showing my students how you begin to interrogate evidence, how you, be, you have to amass from these multiple sources in order to figure out what's really going on. That's so important to remember that not all research and not all sources are created equally. Oh, Lord. <laughs> We're going to go to church on that one. Because we get so <laughs> caught up in that, right? Yes. <laughs> and you mentioned the Rose Library, which is at Emory oh. University. Mm -hmm. What are the steps that you think Emory specifically can take to help address racial and social justice, both here, but also in the broader community? And I think that it is recognizing, one, that Emory's faculty and administration must listen 
to the broader mm. community. It's one thing to kind of kind of stroll in there like you've got all the answers and we don't have all the answers because we haven't fully listened to what's going on and what had created these issues. And we haven't fully seen the strength of these communities. There's a reason why these communities are still here. And we need to like embrace those strengths and then take the resources that we do have and match that with what this listening session actually brings about. So when folks are talking about environmental injustice in their neighborhoods, how did this happen? Yeah. And it's us listening to how this happened. And it's then having the strengths that we have here in our research enterprise about racism, about environmental justice, and then bringing those two together. And I think that that's really how we begin to have the kind of impact that we need to have. Absolutely. And I think even in the example that you've given of environmental justice, which disproportionately impacts black communities in the United States, but a lot of the justice warriors are individuals who don't come from those communities. And so while they're on the right track, if they're not listening, they're not going to make the right progress. Exactly. You know, we have the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship Program here. It is a water walker, I must say. <laughs> and we had a student who is now at Berkeley who did her work on the environmental justice movement here in Atlanta, mm. looking at what those communities needed and who was doing the work right. and the dissonance between those two. I mean, it was powerful work. Yeah. yeah. We see it as well with issues of voting. Mm -hmm. We see that there are these narratives out there about how we got here. And then there's the reality right. of how we got right. here. Right. And so it is listening to those communities that are involved in civic engagement, that are about encouraging their communities to become involved, about trying to figure out how do we make this thing better? What is our vision? for this democracy? What is our vision for our lives? And so it is Emory working with these communities, working with these organizations to hear what those visions are and then matching those visions with the resources that we have that begins to help them figure out how do we, how do we then use our strengths knowing this information that's here at Emory in order to improve the quality of our lives, in right, order to improve right. this society. And it means coming in without those biases, without the paternalism, without the sexism, without the racism, without any of those isms. And that's some heavy lifting. Yeah. But we got the power to do that. Now, you on one hand at Emory have the ability to tell people to go do research and have these complicated, complex conversations. On the other hand, we have laws that are keeping, especially public school faculty, teachers and staff from having conversations even about history, about facts and not teaching our students these things. What advice would you give someone who's maybe in that, other than to come to Emory and be a professor here, <laughs> what advice would you give them of how can they fight this and continue to do their work? And it is absolutely important that that fight continue because part of what we're seeing is a quest to dismantle the public sector, public goods, like public education, public higher education, to dismantle that. The other component that we're seeing here is that if we erase this history, 
if we and, and, and we're labeling it critical race theory, but that's a law school term. Yep. And so, as I said to somebody, if your kindergartner is learning critical race theory, your baby deserves to be in Mensa, right? Um, Absolutely. Your baby's a genius. And so what we must do is to continue to lay out the facts and lay out the consequences of not knowing how we got here. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Yes. There was what I call the Rick Santorum School of History, mm. where you know he said, Europeans came to this land and it was empty and we built it. Now, when you've got that history, mm. Mm, one, this wasn't empty land. Right. And so you have just wiped away millions of indigenous people and just said that they weren't there. Yeah. They didn't exist. Yeah. Two, Europeans did not build this solely by themselves. There were enslaved Africans who were wrested from their country, wrested from their continent and brought here, who were forced to work without being compensated, who were forced to be breeders. Right, right. There were Chinese who were brought in, who helped build the railroads. There were Mexicans who were brought in, who did incredible work in terms of building this nation. When you begin to erase the contributions of so many people, it then allows you to craft a policy framework that says, mm. who built this? Right. Who is worthy? Who is deserving? And who are the takers? Who are the leeches? Who are the parasites? And then when you have that policy frame, bad things happen. Mm -hmm. And so that's why these, these public schools, these public teachers, these, these public prof school professors in these public uh, universities and colleges have to push back. Their administrators, their presidents must push back, must explain why this is dangerous. And I understand that millions are on the line. In a previous lifetime, I worked for the Ohio Board of Regents, and I saw what uh, uh, a state legislature that really didn't get higher ed could propose and could try to do. But you push back with the facts and you push back with the consequences. And you make that really clear. So we had one legislator who was like, why should I care about the sex life of a titsy fly? Well, Ohio State happened to have one of the key experts on the sex life of the titsy nah. fly. <laughs> <laughs> and he laid it out uh. in really clear, powerful language that anybody could understand. Mm. And that's why we have to, we don't cede that incredible territory because that ground is yeah. so important. I mean, when you think about the issues that we are facing in this nation, to try to erase the role that racism has played in housing, in employment, in health disparities, in education, yeah. then if we don't understand that, it's like trying to build a plane, but you ignore gravity. Mm. You can't build the plane yeah. if you don't understand gravity. It is the same thing with the way that racism works in this society. We can't be who we say we are. We can't roll the way we need to mm. roll. We don't have the swag we need to have. We're not bringing it the way we're supposed to bring it if we're not telling the truth. Yeah. I think one thing that it's important that you just reminded me is I love that Emory has a land acknowledgement 
right? And we can do that now as well of acknowledging that, you know, we're on native land of mm -hmm. the Muskogee and Cherokee mm -hmm. tribes because their history has been just wiped out for yes. so long. Yes. But further, you talk about this why, right? And, and earlier we talked about how surface level resources and, and things aren't true. And right now, a big thing that's on the table all over the United States is access to safe abortion. Mm -hmm. And recently I was in Chicago and had the ability to visit the Art Institute there. And there was a really interesting piece that talked about how enslaved women generations ago would talk about using the peacock flower to have abortions because they didn't want their children to end up in this round of slavery. And some would even consider suicide because they didn't want these generations of that. Mm -hmm. And then when you put that into the context of the abortion bans that are happening now, and access to safe abortions, you start understanding a whole different why. Absolutely. And one of our graduates from Emory, her PhD, and now her award-winning book, she's now a professor at Stanford, um, looked at the role of enslaved women mm. in terms of infanticide right. and abortions. Right. Because they were like, my baby is not going to come up under this system. I, I will not subject my child to this. Right. And Part of what we have to understand is how that sense of bodily autonomy is absolutely threatening to a system of oppression. Mm. And so the other component of that is the fear, frankly, that white women aren't having enough babies. Right. I mean, so this right. is where you hear the yeah. lie of the great replacement theory. Yeah. And this is when you begin to look at the assault on reproductive freedom. It is about, I mean, I read this piece that talked about, you know, if we can keep the immigrants out yep. and if white women can start having enough babies, we can deal with the replacement of whites in this society. And that is, the, again, this fear of, of what a vibrant, multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious democracy could actually be. And so the assault on uh, reproductive freedom is steeped in racism. And we have to understand that. It gets cloaked in Christianity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so much madness and badness has been cloaked in Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Um, slavery was cloaked in Christianity. Right. Apartheid was cloaked in Christianity. Yeah. And the, the, the oppressive forces that we're seeing right now are cloaked in a definition of Christianity that has nothing to do with Christ. Yeah, absolutely. This was something that I was going to say for deeper in our conversation, but since you have brought it up, now, uh -huh. we're seeking discomfort. Yes. We've seen a lot of historically excluded groups across the country who've mobilized. One of those being the Women's March, mm -hmm. which some would argue that perhaps have co-opted this energy that was there for a Black Lives Matter movement. We've seen historically, as you talk about the Tulsa massacre, Emmett Till, so many stories that have started with white women. In my activist organizations, where we have a lot of them, one of the things that we say or jokes that I make is what in the name of white women activism? In terms of things that on the surface level may seem that are productive but are not. I also have a lot of white women friends who ask, what can we do to actually make progress and to not overstep? What would you respond to that? Listen. The first thing you have to do is really listen and not put yourself at the center 
of that conversation, not put your vision and your views at the center that, and, and, and make it the thing because that's how movements get mm. shunted aside and you get these really kind of thin veneer modifications, right? right, right? right. And it is also what being a real ally looks like. Yeah. I think about the Black Lives Matter protest in D.C. Mm-hmm. in the summer. And remember the cops were coming at this young black man. The cops were coming. And this young white woman jumped up and got herself in between the cops and that young black man. It was a full understanding of her power and her privilege as a white woman that the cops would be hesitant to come after her. They would be hesitant to go through her to get to Mm. him. That's allyship. Mm. That's allyship. And I also think that seeing that, because that was powerful, seeing that, that was part of what led to this kind of backlash, like, how does she learn to do that? How does she learn to question that power. Yeah. How does she learn how to deploy her power? Oh, we can't have that. We can't yeah. be teaching no, that. That's powerful. <laughs> yeah. I remember my first time learning about that in terms of servant leadership at Oxford. Mm-hmm. Being a Bonner leader was the first time they kind of introduced this concept of making sure that you as the activist or the volunteer or the community service organization are not the center because it is something that so easily happens. Yes. And part of it is that there's a way with the level of education Mm -hmm. and a level of resource availability that really makes putting yourself at the center so smooth and easy. Right. Because you know how to articulate something. You know how to define it. You know the kind of tectonic plates moving underneath it. And so it's like da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. And it's like, "Mm mm-mm, sit. It's like peace be still. Mm. Just sit and listen. Um, And it's in that listening that the real power emerges. Mm, mm. It is in the listening that the real power emerges. I love that. In part two of this special episode. Seeing Patrick Henry in the Constitutional Convention in Virginia, where they're trying to ratify it. And he's looking at James Madison saying, oh, not today. You have put control of the militia under the federal government. We can't trust those folks in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts to send the militia in when our slaves revolt. We can't trust them and we will be left defenseless. And so hearing Patrick Henry, this lion of liberty, really advocating for the control of black people and saying that we must have in that constitution something that will protect us. And that protection was the second amendment. So sitting in the bill of rights is the right to contain and control black people. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.